<laughs> All right, good morning again, those of you watching online. Uh, you can't hear it probably online, but there is the little bit of noise of children. And if you're wondering, we love it, right? We're glad for it. It's literally the noise of God's blessing to us as a church, right? Children are an inheritance from the Lord. They're a blessing. So when they make a little bit of noise here and there, it reminds us that God has blessed us. That's what we say to that. So today, our text is going to bring us uh, to this stark reality of the arrest uh, of Jesus. And so uh, we're, we're really now nearing the end of Jesus' life and ministry. The scene in the upper room is over. Uh, the Passover meal, maybe you want to call it the Pascha, the Paschal meal, uh, is over. Uh, you can imagine that the table is scattered with uh, the leftovers of that meal. That's what, uh, depending on your tradition, you might see if you show up at a Good Friday service from the Maundy Thursday service the night before, you would see the leftovers of that meal. Judas, as John has said, we've mentioned this a number of times, has gone out into the night. Uh, the last hymn has already been sung, and now Jesus and his disciples have headed out for Gethsemane and the cross, right? And so the details uh, of these final moments is what we're going to be hitting in the next week or two uh, in John 18 and in John 19. Today we're in John 18. I don't think I said that yet, so if you want to open your Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one somewhere around you. Um, the events that are about to happen are really of high importance. You might say ultimate importance, uh, because none of the things that Jesus talked about during his ministry uh, in terms of promises to his followers would be possible without the events that are about to happen. So we love the promises of God. We love the promises of Jesus, but there's a path that we have to go through that leads to those promises and, and these events, right? Uh, the promises of eternal life, the promise of the sending of the Holy Spirit as our paraclete, as our helper, Jesus' own return, which is one of the four main things we believe in as an Alliance Church, that he's our coming king. That return, that promise uh, that he is going to return and that while he's gone, he is preparing a place for us uh, and of course, the absolute uh, treasures of salvation and grace and God's mercy and kindness to us, all of those things are dependent on the death of Jesus and on his resurrection and his ascension. And so now, the way that Jesus conducts himself in these next few verses, especially uh, as he nears the end in these last few hours of his earthly life, are going to either validate or invalidate his claims that he has made. And so his life, and especially his death and resurrection, uh, they've been interpreted in many different ways throughout history, right? We, we've seen that. Uh, maybe, maybe you know some of those ways. Some see Jesus' life as a simple fable, uh, not believing that the events like we see recorded in John and the other three Gospels are even real historical events. Uh, some have seen these events not as the death of God himself, which I know is kind of a weird thing to say, but that's what we're seeing. Uh, not the death of God the Father or God the Spirit, but the death of God the Son it is a recorded event. Some have seen these events not as that, but as the death of a great teacher, but simply a human teacher. Yes, he was a great rabbi, a great teacher, but that's all he was. Uh, one of the more famous interpretations that's had a lot of influence on modern thought, on our current thinking about this, is that Jesus is simply a great man who's caught up in what we might call the machine of history. Right? He's born into a group of marginalized people who are occupied by this empire. He gets caught up in the machine of history, and so his death is just evidence of his powerlessness 
And in fact, the Bible tells us that it's true. If that's the end, if his death is it, what? We're, we're to be pitied above everybody. It is a crazy story. But John sees Jesus for what and who Jesus really was and what Jesus really is. So the apostle John portrays Jesus as one who is dramatically exhibiting his lordship, his kingship, and his control in the terrible events that are surrounding his death that we're seeing here. And if, we, if we'll see it, this has really actually encouraging implications. If we'll see what Jesus is doing here, by being in control in this situation, there's a lot of really positive, encouraging implications for us as we live in the midst of a world filled with a lot of the same things Jesus dealt with, right? We live in a world that's filled with anxiety and, and injustice and, and all those different things. And so um, th this world seems like it's ruled by death and decay. And so the way that Jesus responds in the face of death is going to have implications for us. So I'm going to ask Hannah to come up and she's going to read the text for us today. It's John 18, 1 through 11. Thank you. spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook to John, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus also met there with his disciples. So Judas, having secured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Thanks, Hannah. As Hannah was reading, this is the same microphone that I was just singing into, and it was adjusted for my volume. So I was just thinking to myself, I am a loud person. <laughs> uh, now, before we get into breaking this down, uh, I want to remind you of Jesus' own words back in John 10. Uh, because I think they're a good backdrop. We're going to mention them again later, but they're a good backdrop for the events we're seeing now in John 18. So you can flip there if you want, but you don't need to. John 10, verses 14 to 18 says this. This is Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And listen to this part. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Did you know that when you trust in Jesus, you are given this authority? You are given the authority to lay your life down, knowing that the one with authority is going to pick it back up again. So, so what we're seeing now in today's text is the, the living out, the beginnings of Jesus really living this out in real time. And the reason this is important is because of what we said earlier, that Jesus is not simply being caught up in the moment. Jesus is not walking into a trap and he didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, another example of this is Jesus flipping the tables over in the temple, which is actually happening closer to now where we are in the Gospel of John, even though it's back in chapter 2 because John isn't a chronological gospel, but the, that wasn't some fit of rage, right? I've heard that taught a, a whole bunch of times. I've taught it that way, but as I study more and dive deeper into kind of scholarship, what we're seeing is that that's actually a deliberate prophetic act on Jesus' uh, behalf to sort of make sure that what needs to happen to fulfill prophecy is going to happen. And so Jesus is not just caught up in some moment. He is in control. And so to sum up, the entire message today in four words, it would be this, Jesus is in charge. So let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Let's dig in here to John 18, okay? John 18. Uh, first, we see Jesus' lordship and his control over his situation, over the universe, in his choice of the place of this encounter with his captors. Jesus deliberately chose Gethsemane, right? He chose this spot. Again, you have to know that Jesus is playing what we might call like 3D chess, right? He's brilliant. It's not an accident or some happy coincidence that the arrest happens in Gethsemane. John's specific mention of it as a garden in, in verse 1 suggests to us that John the Apostle has in mind a deliberate comparison with the Garden of Eden. That's not an accident. So in uh, stand-up comedy, they call this a callback, right? You've, you've watched stand-up comedy, and they'll say a punchline, and you'll laugh, and then 10 minutes later, they'll refer back to that punchline to get another laugh. Well, this is kind of a similar literary tactic here by John. This is a really beautiful use of symbolism by John here in order to help us see that Jesus is the Lord of this situation. So here's a bullet point version of this symbolism, right? The first Adam began life in a garden. Jesus, who is the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second and better Adam, overcomes sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam fell. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus conquers. In the Garden of Eden, Adam, Adam hid himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus presents himself. In the Garden of Eden, the sword of sin and death is drawn, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, it begins to and is being sheathed forever. See, this is why digging deep down underneath what just the surface of your Bible has to say, specifically in these gospel accounts, is really awesome and fun and so important for us. Yes, the gospels as historical accounts is a good thing, and I, I, I'm never denying that, and I want you to do that, but there's just so much more that the Holy Spirit wants to give you through his inspired writing of these original authors and their 
own humanity uh, through these accounts in the rest of Scripture. So digging down deep into some of this kind of stuff, which you need help with, I need help with, we all need help with. That's what scholars are for. So we have these tools in order to find this stuff because it has real implications for our lives. The Bible isn't meant to be just another source among many where we get information from as Christians. This is a spirit-breathed letter from God to his people, and in it is so much for your soul that will make you a person of love and joy and peace. But we got to dig in there, right? And, we, and, and I would just want to encourage you, you can do it. You have the same spirit in you. You can, you can do this. So this symbolism is not accidental or incidental to Jesus' death. This isn't John making symbolism after the fact to fit nicely. This symbolism is evidence and, I would say, assurance for future generations. You remember Jesus' prayer for all those that might believe. This is assurance for those that might believe, for you and for me, of the beautiful reality that no matter what comes, even unjust death at the hands of a corrupt system, which is what Jesus is, is going through here. That no matter what comes, this is a reminder that even in all of that, Jesus is in charge. And you don't have to understand the circumstances. You can be like Paul and say, I'm perplexed. But you can know that Jesus is in charge. And I want to point this out to you. Uh, John makes the symbolism here even more poignant, more pointed. John mentions in verse 1 that Jesus, he says, he went out with his disciples across the book, the brook Kidron, okay? So we read that, and if we're not doing some of, a little bit of extra curious work, like what's going on there? Like if you have a Bible and it has those little letters next to the verses, like check those out. They, they, they give you some cool cross-references and little notes, and a great study Bible helps you be curious about what you're going on, about what you're reading in these Gospels. And if you don't do that, here's what you might miss in a passage like this. At this time, the Jews, of course, are still practicing uh, animal sacrifice in alignment with the Old Testament teachings on atonement for sin. So there has to be blood in order for atonement to sin, uh, atonement for sin to take place. And so Jesus, where he is, fit geographically, physically, is near the temple. And so uh, there's animal sacrifices that would have been happening. And specifically at this time of year, a lot of them would have been happening. And so there is actually a drain that runs from the temple altar down to the Kidron Ravine, the valley, to literally drain away the blood from all these sacrifices. I know this is kind of gross, right? But that should tell you how sin makes God feel, right? It's, he, it's not his ideal. And so at this time of year, literally thousands. One scholar I read said somewhere around maybe 200,000 lambs are slain during this part of the year as, as part of sacrificial system. So when Jesus and the disciples cross the Kidron, it is red with the blood of sacrifice. Don't miss that symbolism. This is like divine poetry here in John. And again, the purpose of it is deeper than just giving us historical times and places, although he gives us that, right? The Kidron Valley is a real place. It's more than just that. It, it's those things as well, but there's more going on here. John mentioning this specific valley would have meant something very specific to his Jewish 
readers who would have known about the sacrifices happening there and who would have seen this as a way to be faced with this reality that Jesus is in charge even of this system of sacrifice and atonement. Jesus is in control of this situation because Jesus is Lord. He is in charge even in all of this what seems like chaos. Now, in John, there's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 18 that we actually can fill in with some of the other gospel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. So from those other accounts, we understand that, honestly, Jesus is overtaken with terror. Who wouldn't be in Gethsemane? He, he wrestles with the reality of what was to come. Now, I know many of us have been through a situation where we know something terrible is coming or something that makes us real nervous is coming and we start counting down the days and then the hours and then how many. And, and I've experienced that in my life. I know many of you have as well. I don't know if it's you know, a, a health issue or something else, but we've experienced some of that. And that's what Jesus is going through to an extreme. He's been counting those days down until... He's here in Gethsemane, and he's wrestling with the reality of what is going to happen. Listen to these accounts from the other Gospels. This is from Matthew 26. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, the disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus repeatedly fell to the ground and, quote, prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He's begging with God, please, if there's another way, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. He's in such agony that evidently he would literally throw himself on the ground, pray, stand up, and again, fall to the ground in prayer. Now, I've never been to that level of agony, but I can imagine getting there. No one has known that specific sorrow that Jesus experienced Luke, remember, who's a physician, says this, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, this physically can happen. You can burst capillaries in your forehead so that it appears as if sweat is coming out under this kind of stress. Now, there's been some in history, in the history of the church, in the history of kind of the Jesus story, who see these facts and and similar verses like these, and they use them to argue that Jesus is only a man. I mean, because, right, soldiers face this kind of stuff in the battlefield, and and they did better than Jesus would have done. But, But here's what we would argue. Actually, Jesus' agony demonstrates that he knew exactly what was involved and what was coming for him. It wasn't the physical pain that was the most agonizing for Jesus, although that was. It's not the public shame of being hung naked at eye level, which is what was done. It's not the the betrayal of feeling abandoned by his followers, which does happen, and he feels. The primary thing that Jesus is in agony over is that he is going to pay the penalty for our sins. He is going to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf, and he doesn't want to. He wishes there could be another way, but there could not be another way. And so the understanding of what his sacrifice meant causes Jesus, as we saw, to literally break out into a bloody sweat. 
If there was ever, ever evidence of the lordship of Jesus, of the power of Jesus, it is this, his willingness to continue to step into that for you and for me and for all those who would believe in him to pay for our sins, even while feeling the weight of them. And so John picks up the narrative after Jesus sort of uh, resolves himself to drink the cup. And these moments are really loaded with drama. This is verses two and three. Now Judas, who betrayed him, I love how John wants to make sure we remember who it was. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. Think of the betrayal in that. Oh, I know the special place they go to. Let's go look for them there. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, understand this. Remember, Judas guarded the money. And here John is telling us that he bought soldiers in his betrayal of Jesus. That just makes the betrayal that much deeper. And so it's the middle of the night in the springtime. And scholars tell us that it's probably cloudless because John mentions that it's cold. So that's probably evidence that it was cloudless, clear, cold night in John 18, 18. So the olive trees, uh, you can imagine, right? There's the moonlight is out. It's a clear night. There's these eerie shadows from all. I don't know if you've ever seen olive trees, but they have crazy looking branches. And so there's these crazy looking shadows all across their little spot where they meet, right? And so down beyond the ravine, you see the twinkling lights of Jerusalem. You can see the city where Judas had met up earlier with what Matthew described as a great crowd of Roman soldiers where he procured them. And these soldiers are armed and they're carrying this little short sword that they all would have been carrying. And so then with them are temple guards as well who didn't carry swords, but who carried probably a club. And so here we see Jews and Gentiles united in this sinister cause to come in to get Jesus. They carefully chose the time and place. They want to arrest Jesus, not in the middle of everybody. They want to arrest him away from everybody, away from the crowd, so there wouldn't be any kind of uprising, any kind of riot happening, right? But still, they prepare for the worst. And so use, again, your imagination. Uh, I, I keep reading these scholars who say one of the things that's true about a gospel is that part of its intention is for you to put yourself into this moment. So use your imagination to think of what the sight must have been like. A long line of torches maybe coming towards you, coming down from the holy city Jerusalem across that same blood-stained ravine of Kidron and up the slopes towards the garden, towards Olivet or the, the, the Mount of Olives. And so Judas, who had left them during the upper room, he went out into the night, is now the one likely in the lead walking towards them, right? So, so put yourself in the scene here. And in just a few minutes, Mark's gospel says that he, this is the literal translation, he fervently kissed Jesus as his sign of betrayal so they would know who Jesus is. So let's keep going, verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, this is John 18, four, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now notice 
Jesus, instead of like hiding in the middle and like hoping they don't see him, he steps out knowing John said all that would happen to him. He goes forward to meet this crowd. Then in response to their question, he openly identifies himself. So Christianity isn't some hidden secret little sect. It's a public thing for the world to see. Jesus doesn't hide. John specifically presents their response of falling to the ground as a sign or as a miracle. That's the way John writes about it. They, they didn't fall down when he asked them what they wanted, right? He did, they didn't just fall down because of his voice or they would have fell down earlier. They fall down after he says, I am he, or literally, I am. Now, if you know your Bible, you should know that that phrase, I am, comes from the burning bush of Exodus 3, when God says, I am who I am. Jesus is clearly identifying himself as God. So Jesus' response here in John 18 is, is the last exercise of the same power that he used to calm the seas, to still the wind, and to heal the sick. It's just a little display for his disciples and for you and for I to remember Jesus is in charge. So is Jesus caught up in the machine of history? Is he just caught up in the moment? No, Jesus is the hub of history. He is what all history points to. One commentator said this, in a very real sense, the cohort, the soldiers did not arrest Jesus, he arrested them. His words are a gracious warning that they are in way over their heads. And again, we remember the words that Jesus said earlier in John 10, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And, and the theme of the Lordship of Jesus just keeps going in verses seven to nine of John 18. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And if you know and trust Jesus, you are in that prophecy as well. He has not lost you and he will not lose you. Now there's very little reason to think. I always find it funny when I've read this text, why did they ask him again if it made him fall down? Right, that's kind of weird, right? There's very little reason to think that the soldiers didn't intend to just arrest everybody. Right, it came with a huge group. It makes sense that they would just arrest all of them. But Jesus protects his followers because this is promised in the Old Testament. And then we also have the way that Jesus deals with Peter's attack that we see. And we see no evidence of a powerless person simply caught up in history, right? We clearly see Jesus as Lord and God in control here in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now, if you don't know this, you should know this. Peter wasn't going for the ear. Peter was going for the head, and he missed. So understand the violence in Peter's heart. He's not trying to just take a guy's ear. He cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. That's not only a command in the moment, but I think that's a prophetic word for the church. We don't use that kind of power. We don't, we don't do that. Now, again, put yourself in this scene and imagine the tension, right? This tiny little band of guys, all these soldiers, one of the guys cuts off one of the ears of the guard. He 
reaches his hand up to his ear, pulls it down, and there's blood all over the place. And, and remember the shock and all of this. And then all the sound, imagine the sound of all those swords probably being drawn in that moment, right? All those soldiers draw their sword because they're going to react. And then over all of this, we see in Luke 22, the voice of Jesus says, no more of this. No more of this. It's enough. And Jesus touched Malchus' ear and he healed him. Understand the display of lordship and power that Jesus just displayed in all of this. He is displaying mercy and kindness in the most vulnerable moment. What an example for us for what it means to walk in the power of the spirit of Jesus in us. That we don't play the same game as the world. And when we're tempted to, Jesus speaks to us no more of this. Now the incredible summary kind of of this moment from Jesus is in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is a rhetorical question to his disciples, to you and to me, to all those who were standing there, those guards. What do you think I'm going to do? Abandon my mission now at this point? Right? The cup, maybe you don't know that language. The cup here is symbolic language for the cross, the, the cup of judgment for sin that, that we should have drunk, that we were owed. Jesus took on himself our punishment in those hours of darkness that are coming at the cross, that are starting here. Now, earlier, Jesus wrestled with the terror of this cup. He says, literally, let this cup pass if it's possible. And then he says those famous words, but not my will, but yours be done. Over and over in this last section of John, we've been seeing that Jesus is saying, this is for the glory of my father. I want to glorify my father so that maybe so that he'll glorify me. But this is all about the glory of my father. And it's about his will and his glory. And I'm walking in that power. And so we see these surrounding realities of Jesus' final hour. We see that they are clearly displaying his sovereign control. Jesus is not anxious. He's afraid of the cross, but he's not worried about what's going to happen. He has turned himself over to the Father. And so he, his, the intensity of, of his terror and his agony, but also his sovereign resolve in the power of knowing who he is as loved by the Father to bear it, his control over the, like, he, he just controlled all these soldiers. Notice that? He says, let these men go. Stop your swords. And they listen. All of these factors are assigned to us that he is omniscient, all-powerful God, even in the midst of a moment like this. So, so how does this relate to us? What does this have to do with me when I go to work tomorrow morning, right on Monday? It's this. Although the Gethsemane of Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a real historical place, but also symbolic place. Although that Gethsemane is infinitely beyond our experience, none of us are going to experience what it's like to atone for the sins of the world. Gethsemanes are a part of the lives of all of us who would follow Jesus. We follow him on the road to Calvary, and the road to Calvary goes right through Gethsemane. The message of Jesus 
is not that you will never face trouble. He never tells you that. But that you have been loved by the one who has faced ultimate trouble on your behalf and who is now inviting you into life with him so that you can become like him in his trouble and ultimately in his glory. That's what he's inviting you into. And there's a power in that that is not in skipping the trouble. All of us will have times of distress where the cup will feel like it is way too much for us to bear and it is too much for us to bear sometimes. We will all experience times when to the unbelieving eye, we are simply powerless people caught up in the machine of history. Some of us might feel like that this morning. Like my life is just out of my control. I can't do anything about it. And I'm just caught up in the machine of history. But as followers of Jesus, here is where we can rest our hope on solid ground. Just as Jesus controlled his own destiny by trusting in the Father, even when the opposite seemed to be the case, he now controls our destiny. So rest in that. Rest in that. Even when everything seems to point to a small, tiny God who can't do anything, or maybe, maybe it seems like it points to no God at all, the truth is that Jesus, we sing this, Jesus controls my destiny. He controls where I go, so I'm not worried. It's not unknown. Somehow, Gethsemane is ultimately not a tragedy because of the rest of the story, and neither are our Gethsemanes. This doesn't do away with the wounds of affliction, right? Jesus had his wounds in his resurrected body. It doesn't do away with the pain in this life, but we lay our identity, we lay our hope, we lay our future on the solid rock of knowing that behind every human tragedy, somehow, for those of us who believe, stands the good and wise purpose of Jesus, who is the Lord of human history. And please don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. It doesn't make light of the agony of the human experience. Pain and loss is real. But somehow, Jesus is Lord even over that. Life will get dark at times, right? I don't need to tell you that because you live through 2020. Life will get dark, tragedy will come, and there will be times when the whole world will seem to be falling apart. The whole world will feel like that, but that is not the end. That is not the final word over us. The final word over our lives actually came from Jesus many times, but one really specific example came back that applies, I think, so well to today from John 16. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And what does he say next? And he's living it now in John 18. In this world you will have peace trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world, is the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the reality of that word you just spoke to us through John, through our scriptures, that the truth is in this world, we're going to have trouble, but that you're with us and that we're in you and you're in us because of our faith that you have made us one with you and with one another somehow, which is beyond our comprehension, but by faith we trust in it, knowing that you have overcome the world. And so in your overcoming of the world, we know that 
somehow, someday, we will have and we do even now overcome the world in you. I pray that we would live well in this tension of this already not yet reality, that you are making all things new and you're starting with us, your church. I pray that we would be a people who demonstrate what this looks like, that we would be a people who who look more and more like you look even in the Garden of Gethsemane, that in the Garden of Gethsemane's in our life, we would have your kind of wisdom and kindness and mercy and your words. And so I just pray that your spirit would fill us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us in this place as we take this meal in just a few minutes. And even as we go out, that we would experience more and more of you, that we would grow in our awareness of you so that we might become what you want us to be. Disciples who are following Jesus, looking to be more and more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.